and welcome to the Digital Digest, your weekly podcast from Capacity Media on all things digital infrastructure. I'm your host, editor Melanie Mingus, and joining me this week, we have editor-at-large Alan Burkett-Gray, deputy editor Natalie Bannerman, and reporter Seth Malik. Later in this episode, we will also be joined by Andrew Lord, who is the senior manager of optical networks and quantum research at BT. So no prizes for guessing which of our favourite themes we're going to be talking about in around 20 minutes time. But before that, a quick roundup of the recent headlines. In Asia, China Telecom is to extend its services to two Hong Kong data centers with BDX. Tubdite, the data center operator set up by Bill Barney, is to use AsiaSat to expand its reach. And the Southern Cross Next Cable is on track to land on Sydney's Coogee Beach on the 14th of December. Meanwhile, in the seas between Greece and Italy, Grid Telecom and Isolink have formed an agreement to deliver a terrestrial backbone fiber extension of the Ionian subsea cable. Elsewhere, Vion has concluded the sale of its Russian towers to Service Telecom for 957 million US dollars. While in the UK, Neos Networks has met its target to unbundle 550 BT exchanges before the end of 2021. And a London-based startup called World Mobile has said it plans to deploy a balloon-based mobile network in Tanzania and Kenya. But onto the biggest stories of the week now, and to a new chapter in a long-running debate. Should the predominantly American OTTs contribute to the network costs of European telcos? So for this one, we're going to go over to Natalie. Natalie, over to you. Thanks, Melanie. Yeah, so as you mentioned, um, a, a really long-standing topic and, and debate, I suppose, that one that hasn't really reached its natural conclusion, really. Um, but specifically earlier this week, three of Europe's uh, biggest telcos issued a joint statement calling on the US uh, tech giants to contribute to the costs of building Europe's telecoms networks. Uh, so signatories include um, Altis Portugal, BT Group, Deutsche Telekom, KPN, uh, Orange, Proximus, Swisscom, Telefonica, Telecom Austria, Telenor, Telia Company, Vi- uh, Vivacom and Vodafone. Um, now, in the statement, the group uh, said that the increased uh, investment required for things like 5G, uh, fibre connectivity, uh, subsea cable networks to support the data and cloud services provided by the likes of uh, Netflix, you know, YouTube and, and Facebook has, has actually caused investment in the sector to rise to uh, 52.5 billion euros in 2020, which is actually a six year high. Now, in the statement, they didn't uh, name uh, specific content players or or tech companies specifically, but of course we we know the ones that they're talking about. as you mentioned, Amelie, it really is a contentious topic um, in the industry. Most carriers kind of, you know, believe that OTTs and content players aren't, uh, don't pay their fair share uh, to use carrier networks. And as we well know, it's very, very expensive to build and deploy um, as well as to maintain and operate. Now, in the statement, uh, the 13 uh, telcos, they said that a large and increasing part of network traffic is generated and monetized by big tech platforms, but it requires continuous intensive network investment and planning by the telecommunications sector. This model, which enables EU citizens to enjoy the fruits of the the digital transformation, can only be sustainable if big tech platforms also contribute fairly to network costs. Um, So there's no actual word on um, where this statement was uh, published, who it was issued to. it's probably fair to say that it was probably uh, given to, um, you know, the European Commission, European Union or some kind of government body uh, so they can actually take action on this. Um, but it's interesting uh, because this topic actually came up, you know, over the years, of course, but specifically this year during NWC Barcelona in June uh 
Timotheus um, Hodges, who is the CEO of Deutsche Telekom, who's also signatory um, of the uh, statement, actually went on a bit of a tirade during um, the conference keynote. Um, at the time, he said, how can it be that, you know, WhatsApp is not treated as a communication service, um, you know, and how could it be that Microsoft is evolving their network, connecting their edge network with their fiber networks, um, providing connectivity to their customers, and they are not treated as a connectivity provider. Um, he went on to say, you know, how can it be that 80% of the traffic is generated by over-the-top players, and they're not even paying a cent for using the infrastructure and the build-out costs and getting in exchange all the value of the data of our consumers. Is that a fair equation? Um, you know, he said that, you know, he believes that the European governments must look at the chess field and find a level playing field for our industries with the hyperscalers and the overtop players. So hardly a surprise, you know, given the uh, the uh, the small hints that have kind of been played over time. We also know um, that I think it was last year, Australia was the kind of first uh, government to kind of take some kind of action towards some of the uh, content players. Um, they actually um, put in, in place a, a code of conduct that would actually force the OTTs to pay for its content um, and enter into like a rev share agreement with, you know, Australian media companies. So I think really it's just a, 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 the 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 culmination of, a, of a, a, a lot of frustration between, you know, the, the carrier community and the OTTs. And um, I think we'll be seeing a lot more of this um, to come. I think we will. Yeah. And I completely agree with you. And I think this is the start of business models changing as well, um, because on the OTT angle, they make their point well. And it's very interesting to see this quantified because we don't usually see figures on this debate. We just hear the kind of like emotional side of it. Um but my feeling is that, I mean, as you said as well, this would take regulatory intervention to actually become a reality. Um, so then the other part is that they are just kind of generally complaining about their finances. There's a lot of, you know, there are a lot of um, financial issues here that they raise on. But on that point, specifically when they talk about Spectrum 5G investments, now we've heard of that happening in India too. So what is the answer to this? Is it handouts? Is it charging for creating network demand? Is you know, get the OTTs to stump up something? Or is it that, I mean, particularly on 5G networks, for example, and the fact that these networks are getting more expensive, is it just that future networks are just going to be really expensive to deploy? And if it is that point, then what what does that mean for global deployments? Because this India and Europe, two major markets, have raised this point now in very close, you know, quite recent succession. Um, and you know, as we see this wider digital ecosystem develop, do we need to actually change the business model of networks and communications and the infrastructure behind it all? But yeah, Saf and Alan, I'm sure you guys have plenty to say on this as well. Yeah, I think um, if I can jump in, uh, it's it's been going on for a long time, ever since the OTT started, which is, what, 10, 15 years ago? And they grumbling about uh, Facebook particularly and and Google and so on, using their, their transport. I mean, I don't know what one solution would be if, if they paid some sort of carriage fee, but whether you, how you reverse engineer that into the economic model of the mobile industry, I don't know. I mean, traditionally, uh, the user pays for a phone call. You know, if the model goes back 100 and odd years, the user pays for a phone call. You don't get, con we never had content players in the old days of telecoms, content providers. I don't see how you can then say, well, you could only get Facebook if Facebook pays for a share of the fee. But uh, you know, as as we'll we'll come on to later in this podcast, there is a lot of investment going on by the mobile operators in 4G through into 5G 
and in a few years time into 6G so that they do have they have to do it they're forced to do it who is going to pay for it at the moment it's it's we as consumers are paying for it i suppose and our our monthly bills uh, it's not the people it's not the companies whose uh, whose content we're providing and i can't, unless they start shrinking the capacity you know um so that you get slow service on whatsapp um i don't know i, I can't see a solution in sight without sort of major industrial action by the mobile operators and i can't see that happening yeah that's a very interesting point alan because as we've seen previously if you make it's not if you make it too difficult for the OTTs, they will have no hesitation in just building their own network infrastructure. So do we find a way, to tell us find a way to charge them? Or, you know, are the OTTs going to expect this for free? And if they don't get it for free, it's all right, we'll just build our own cables and we'll charge ourselves. Yeah, I th also think it's worth remembering as well, you know, at the very least in the conversations that we, we've had with the content players is they don't particularly want to venture into the world of telecoms due to, um, you know, all the kind of regulatory um, implications um, and the, the kind of requirements would be placed on them, which I suppose is as part of the argument, you know, for people like uh, Timotheus when he's saying, you know, how does a provider like WhatsApp not have to comply with, you know, the kind of rules um, as a communications provider because, you know, they don't actually own the network. Um, so I think um, Alan's right in the sense that I don't, I think, you know, the little bit of investment that they've made you know, in, in network infrastructure has very much been, you know, point to point. I don't see a hunger for them wanting to kind of, you know, become full-blown telcos. Um, but it's interesting because I, I there's also a part of me that thinks, okay, well, is maybe the solution then maybe the cost of building out networks, will that have to come down in order for it to be sustainable? Do we then kind of enter into a model whereby, you know, local governments, as you mentioned, Mel, you know, is it just a question of handouts or is it a question of, you know, because um, telecoms infrastructure is very much seen as communications infrastructure and used for all manner of things from, you know, like emergency services and various things, does it kind of become public private owned and therefore get partly funded by some you know governments in order to kind of keep those costs down and and you know there's there's lots of different ways but I, one thing i will say is everybody seems to mention rev share agreements and the uh, content players definitely don't seem to be biting on that one because that has been thrown around for a number of years and it hasn't moved forward yet yeah, on the other hand in the subsea market which you know extremely well natalie the, the facebook and google have started building subsea cables presumably because they haven't felt the the conventional telecoms operators have met their needs and so they've done something they've done something that they want instead um i don't know where is that some an argument that could be extended i don't know that is the bit i was trying to reference yeah but <laughs> right okay okay very much subsea seems to be a bit of a bit of a, an anomaly in the sense of the way that they are kind of building because we're not seeing that same kind of um, deployment in any other parts of infrastructure. Yes, okay, data centers a little bit, but um, yeah, subsea, I think Alan's right. It's very much they there is a need there and I feel like they probably feel like they're not going to get it unless they build it themselves and they do have the most kind of like disposable income. Um, but yeah, I, I still very much when you speak to them, they're like, yeah, we just want to provide the content and do as a small amounts of the infrastructure because we don't want to have to deal with all the regulatory stuff that goes with it so but we'll see it, it, it's always changing 
but we and we are paying for data. You know, I pay three, you know, every month for, for my data, my voice calls, things like that. It's it's paying for the content in in a, in a roundabout way. It's measured in megabytes and, and minutes, not in a deal with Facebook and all the other people. But nevertheless, I do, I do pay for it in in, in a different way and. Uh, Maybe the operators are pricing themselves too cheaply, um, and maybe European operators, if you look at the rates uh, that we pay as Europeans uh, for our mobile access, it's way less than, for example, in the United States, which is perhaps and even less than in Canada, which is hugely expensive. But perhaps we're we're perhaps we're just being parsimonious. Perhaps we're just paying too little. And if we if this somehow managed to up the rates we pay, but I can't see again how they would change that. They've got to say, oh, right, you're going to pay 5% more every month until it gets to be about twice as much as it is now. Would that make them happier? Probably not. I don't know. No. Let's <laughs> wait and see. Um, well, moving on to the next story, which is entirely unrelated. We are talking 2022 trends next. Um, and one of the trends predicted by Analysis Mason um, is that more telcos will venture into gaming next year. So, Saf, bring us full circle. Why would this happen? When? How? Tell us more. Yes, thanks, Melanie. This is a bit of an extension to um, the, the the topic we were just discussing. Um, we've seen many OTT platforms such as Netflix and Microsoft diversify their portfolios to include gaming in recent months. Um, and research from Analysis Mason predicted that operators will expand their strategies to capture some of the $180 billion digital gaming industry in 2022. Um, they say as games publishers and operators' needs are aligning around billing for gaming services following the fallout from the Apple and Epic Games lawsuit, the conditions are right for games developers and platforms to partner. Martin Scott, lead, anal lead, lead analyst for Analysis Mason's worldwide media and pay TV research, believes that the primary reasons telcos want to delve into gaming is for growth. He told me for a feature I wrote for our magazine, gaming offers as much absolute revenue growth as the whole of TV and video combined, but from a much, much lower base because it's doubling in value over the next five or six years. The, predict the predictions report added that while the metaverse won't be a killer app for 5G in 2022, it will represent a leap forward in bringing AR and VR services to the mass market. The hype around the metaverse will continue in 2022 with various versions of social, gaming and entertainment competing for attention. The major question for telcos, according to the report, is the degree to which AR and mobility will feature rather than the VR heavy version presented by Facebook. Um, and of course, you can read more about Telco's opportunities in gaming in my feature on the Capacity Media website. Fantastic. Thanks, Saf. Well, interesting. Who, never, who ever knows with these trend things? Um, because Analysis Mason also said, gaming aside, um, and the gaming point is very interesting, but another of their predictions for next year is that 2022 will be the start of a two-year spike in 5G standalone investment. But then if we come back to Natalie's story and we're talking about Europe, where's that money going to come from? It's interesting times in, in the world of telecoms. Well, on to our third story of this week, um, we're going to go over to Alan now, who is going to talk about the Ericsson Mobility Report. Alan, over to you. Thank you. And, and this continues from what Saf and, and Natalie have been saying. Uh, we're only a year or two into the 5G era, yet already the industry is hailing it as the fastest rising mobile generation ever. Um, this is these are numbers from Ericsson, so they've got a, a vested interest. They're one of the three big vendors in the world. Uh, but this is 
despite the fact some people say there isn't a use case for 5G, except as Saf says, you know, maybe gaming is the main use case for 5G. Um, as, but there was a use case clearly for previous generations, right back to 2G, which meant, you know, we could all for the first time ever carry phones in our pockets and our bags. Um, so this annual mobility report from Ericsson, um, and it's available online and we have a link in our story, um, says there will be 660 million 5G subscriptions, which I suppose effectively means 660 million 5G phones by the end of 2021. But that by the end of 2027, so six years time, there'll be 4.4 billion 5G subscriptions. Uh, and that'll be about half of all the mobile subscriptions in the world. So suddenly 5G has come from nothing to really dominating the whole mobile market. The two uh, areas that are dominating the growth are China and North America. Uh, no surprise there, uh, where the big operators are switching to 5G because it makes better use of the spectrum. Of course, it's also giving China, the Chinese vendors, a, a big lead in the business for other parts of the world. Um, the old generations aren't dead. The industry is now adding new 5G subscriptions twice as fast as new 4G subscriptions. So in the third quarter of 2021, that's what uh, July, August, September, uh, it added 98 million 5G subscriptions around the world uh, compared with 48 million 4G, new 4G subscriptions. So meanwhile, 2G and 3G are still there. But basically, if you look at the chart, they're not really growing at all. They're plateauing and they'll gradually trickle away. Earlier generations, strange CDMA things that never really got very far will just disappear over the next few years. And also we're using our phones more than expected. 11.4 um, gigabytes a month of data per person, which is just astonishing. It's way beyond the expectations. Uh, but then I'm going to do an old man joke and, and say, look, 30 years ago when mobile started, people said there'd be a market in the UK for about 100,000 people and they'd make just the odd, you know, one or two minute call from their car as they were coming into meetings. And now we're using them all the time and not much for voice, but for lots of other stuff. Um, total mobile traffic around the world will be 65 exabytes a month by the end of this year. Um, which, you know, as we're now in December, that's two exabytes a day. Obviously, that's going to be driving a lot of the investment by the big telco carriers, particularly the wholesale carriers. We're helping here on Digital Digest, of course. Um, you're all listening via mobile, via carriers. The current estimate is that there'll be almost 8.9 billion mobile connections of all types by 2027. So with 5G, as they say, dominating and 4G by then, remarkably in steep decline. Uh, by 2027, we should have a bit of an idea what 6G will bring. The work has already started on that, as we've covered in the past, and the industry has started to define its requirements and expectations. Every 10 years, there's another generation, and that's the way it's been going since mobile started, and probably through into 6G for the 2030s, and who knows where we will be in the 2040s, I'm not sure. I'll even want to know. Anyway, Mel, back to you. Fantastic. Thanks, Alan. Who knows indeed? Um, but I'm sure Ericsson will tell us all about it way ahead of time. Well, next up in today's episode, we are talking to Andrew Lord, who is the Senior Manager of Optical Networks and Quantum Research at BT. Andrew, welcome to the Digital Digest and thanks so much for joining us today. 
Yeah, great. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks. Well, today we're going to be talking about the optical research that's happening at BT's laboratories, um, particularly how you and your team are working closely with Toshiba to try quantum key distribution in real life communications. But Alan is our quantum QKD resident expert. Um, so Alan, over to you. Thank you, Melanie. Yep. Um, so thank you for joining us, Andrew. Um, and I've just written a feature which quotes from you as, as well as lots of other people from around the quantum world uh, for Capacity Media. That's the uh, December, January issue um, of the magazine. So, I mean, that I start off by saying in that feature that current uh, key distribution, current security methods are broken, which is what a lot of people are telling me. Do you agree with that? I mean, are we at a point where the way we secure our internet data is broken at the moment because of the coming of quantum computing. Is that right? No. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I, I, I would be much more careful with my wording and say that it, it certainly could be broken in the future, but it's not broken yet. So, so I just want to qualify that because, um, um, you know, for sure, there isn't a quantum computer of any kind of strength to break break current um, crypto codes, um, and it's probably not going to be here for five years. So, so no, not broken. But you know, there's nothing. Or the, it would be difficult, but people could, with with the right ingenuity, um, break into systems and and store data and wait for five years until a quantum computer came along and then decrypt the data. So you, you could argue in that sense that things um, could, could be broken, uh, you know, data that's being sent now could, could potentially be broken in the future. So just, just qualifying <laughs> the, the statement. Yeah, and, and, you know. that's a really good point because in fact, uh, a number of people uh, I spoke to said that, including Laura Thomas, who's a ex-CIA person. She works for Cold Quanta, which is the company that's now run by Dan Caruso, uh, founder of Zeo and uh, big noise in the whole telecoms industry. Um, and Cold Quanta is, is getting quantum computers out next year. Um, and Laura says, yes, uh, countries are harvesting data. And she points her finger at a couple of countries. Uh, and some companies, and it's called Harvest Now, Decrypt Later. So that's really it depends how how happy you are with the thought that some people are storing your data now to decrypt it in five years or ten years, and how embarrassing that might be, even you know in five or ten years' time. Is, well, is that a big change? Yeah, it's partly that, but it's also um, you know installing a new. Um, cryptography system is not instant either. I mean, if you you know you wake up tomorrow and find somebody uh, that you didn't know had, in, had you know improved quantum compute power, um, you, you couldn't respond you know instantly. It, you know, building new crypto systems is time consuming when when you have to go through all of the um, assurance and penetration testing to to check that the implementations are, are as good as as you hoped. Um, that 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 itself is going to take years. Um, and when I say new. Um, that that implies replacement, but I, I don't think that's the case either. I think what what we will be doing is overlaying what we have at the moment uh, in good time with uh, with new um, over the top um, cryptography that, 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 that coexists with what we have at the moment, and and it's just a question of 
getting that in place before you know um, before it's it's needed because of the, the time taken to do it and and, and I guess that the two approaches and of which we'll be following both what well, one is to improve the algorithms uh, and there's a huge amount of effort going on in that area um, but the one the one that we're interested in at BT is um, as well as the algorithmic approach is to make use of our fiber I mean we are fiber rich you know we have a big fiber asset can we sweat that asset and can we use it to our, our advantage to do something that maybe others can't do and that's offer cryptography in a very different way using single photons and using physics tell me about you've got a couple of projects running i think one's in london and one's in bristol in the west of england tell me about those two projects yeah so the, the bristol one has been running um, well over a year now uh, it's working with the national composite center in bristol um, and that is doing qkd quantum key distribution um, so that the single photons of light are being sent between the two um, um, the two buildings that, that are in Bristol. One is NCC and, and, and they have a building connected to them where they do their 3D printing. Um, so we, we've designed for them a, a solution that goes on BT fiber, open reach fiber through um, uh, an exchange, a BT exchange, uh, and then on, on that fibre, we're not just carrying data, but we're carrying single photon QKD uh, provided by Toshiba. Um, so that's been running for a year or so, and and kind of it, it is important because it looks very commercial. That that's the kind of solution. You know, everything that's in there we could sell and that's really been the motivation for us to then go further and say well you know if we can build these point-to-point -point solutions for someone in Bristol why can't we build a bigger quantum network for many customers in say London um, and that's really what we're doing at the moment so very exciting uh, kind of project which um, I'm helping lead um, with Toshiba is to build now a quantum network where there would be uh, multiple nodes uh, three nodes nodes in London, but but then connecting up multiple customers who would um, be um, connected to those nodes and connected to to other uh, other customer buildings. Um, and and you might say, well, well, why is that such a big you know step forwards? Uh, and and it is because of the the move from a single point to point link to a network. Uh, and you can imagine once you've got multiple of these quantum um, links connected together, that, that that becomes more of a headache in terms of how do you manage it? Um, how do you check that it's working? How do you make sure the keys go the right way? <laughs> not, mm -hmm. not to the wrong endpoint. That all that needs um, key management that hasn't really been developed or demonstrated so far. And how secure are the nodes? Because uh, I, I developed an analogy, and I'm not sure where where this came from, but it was uh, uh, the fact that uh, Willie Sutton, who was a famous bank robber in the US in the 1920s, somebody said, why do you keep robbing banks, Willie? And he said, because that's where the money is. And I drew an analogy that if you want to steal data, you go to the nodes, uh, the data centers, I guess, because that's where the data is, not necessarily on the fibers going from one to the other, uh, which are heavily protected and will be, I guess, even more heavily protected through quantum key distribution. How do you protect the nodes and make sure you don't get any intrusion or theft into there? So um, the solution, yeah, it's a very good question. Um, I mean, uh, it, 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 uh, the analogy I would use is if you're trying to protect your house, 
if you think people um most likely to break in through the windows does that mean you just leave your door wide open um so you do everything don't you so you don't just take one precaution you make sure everything is as good as it can be and so just because um, there's a risk that people might get into the, the node doesn't stop you from making sure your fiber is protected um having said that what do we do about the nodes um so we uh, we have in bt exchanges secure areas uh, and so for the the, the critical um, qkd equipment that will be housed in in a secure part of the building that has incredibly uh, restricted access and then the the other parts of the solution that aren't so critical for, from the the key management or, or the key distribution will be in the more um the but the, I say easy to access, but the more general areas of the exchange. So, so we are taking that very seriously and taking that into account. And how? What's the sort of reach, uh, Andrew? I mean, you've talked to one project that's a year old in Bristol, which is only a few kilometres, and then in London, between Canary Wharf and and the traditional city, the traditional financial district, which is also what three or four or five kilometres apart. Um, but telecoms goes worldwide. How do you carry this security, not just over thousands of kilometres, but also from one carrier to another? Is there work going on between you and, say, AT&T and Orange and Telstra and other people around the world to, to come up with some sort of way of exchanging quantum secure data? Well, a very far-reaching question. Uh, let me try and yeah. break it down. Uh, <laughs> um, firstly, the, the trial itself in London... Um, is more than just a few kilometers. So we have one node um, out in the slough direction. So there will be distances there of several tens of kilometers. And the technology that we're using with Toshiba is um, capable of going 80, 100 kilometers. Um, and, and we don't need that in London, but we could, if, if we needed to, we, we could do that. Um, the, the trick there is to make sure you use the right wavelength. Um, so optical fiber does very well um, at 1.5 micron uh, wavelengths. It has slightly worse loss at different wavelengths. And, and so it's just a question of balancing the, the right um, fiber technology. But as you say, that's not going to solve a, an international problem. Um, I think it does solve most of the problems in country. So um, we're sharing point-to-point -point solutions in London and, and Bristol. Um, we would then aspire to building a metro and a, and a national link uh, or network, which would be predominantly fibre. But then at some point, we have to bite the bullet and say, well, fibre can't go across the ocean. What do we do? Uh, now, fibre does go across the ocean all the time, but but not with single photons. Uh, and I suspect that, that until we get um, very extreme technologies such as quantum repeaters, which are not here yet, that's, that's going to be very difficult. In the at, meantime, at the moment, what, what happens is the light is, is basically picked up, electronically transferred and then sent down new via new LEDs or lasers into uh, into more fiber as it, as it, through the through the long subsea cables I guess yeah isn't it? almost um, so what happens in classical data uh, around the world uh, yeah. on uh, systems like transatlantic systems transpacific systems is you use optical amplifiers um, yeah. so so you don't you don't convert the photons back to electrons you don't do that but you just amplify the light as it is um, and that's great but it doesn't work with single photons it breaks the single photon performance it breaks the the the, the very sensitive data that's, that's being held on these keys so unfortunately qkd does not go through optical amplifiers 
So what we would um, <clears throat> we really have to look at other solutions for distributing keys globally. And of course, there we're very keen on a potential satellite solution. And, um, and we've been very vocal in the last year of our um, collaboration with Arkit, um, who are developing commercial um, QKD satellites for the next um, two or three years. Um, and so for us there, for BT, um, that gives us then a, a global plus a national and metro capability, which to me seems like we, we could build the whole the whole thing. Um, the idea with the satellite is that the satellite um, sends these single photons, but obviously this time not over fiber, but over free space to ground stations on the planet, then takes the keys that have been distributed and sends them onto a, another ground station somewhere else and gives you thereby a, a kind of a, a global reach. And Arkit, to explain, I've also talked to David Williams for this feature, who's he's founder and CEO, and it's a UK based, but US, largely US financed. And it's actually his market cap last time I looked is $2.7 billion. And this is a, a company that was in stealth mode until only a few months ago. So a lot of confidence in Arkit, I guess, uh, including BT, uh, putting its confidence in Arkit. So, yeah. Do you think that's going to be that will be satellite distribution of keys will be the answer to getting global quantum security. Well, I can't see another one. I mean, I mean, if you think what what's the alternative, you know, many companies and and, and the secure organisations will distribute keys uh, in. Um, attache cases handcuffed to people and they will fly them around the planet that, yeah. that that's uh, that's unfortunately the reality at the moment if we can find a better way of doing it than that then um you know i, I think th this really does make sense and and you know key distribution using the uh, algorithms and the mathematical approach is still going to happen and it doesn't mean that that's completely you know pointless uh, I, th I think we're going to see a hybrid of both Right. OK, so what sort of markets, what sort of users are you sort of have you got in your mind? OK, it's still very experimental, still very much on trial. But are you talking about government data? Are you talking about financial data, medical information from the top? And is it going to filter down so it's all of our emails eventually? What do you think? <clears throat> yeah, I, I mean, it's a good. Um, picture of, of it filtering down. I, I, I think there's there's a lot of sense in that that you would start with um, the people and the companies that have absolute security as part of their USP. So you know if it matters to you that that you can prove that that your um, your 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 company is operating ultra securely. For example, if you're um, into health and medical or, or any kind of uh, designs, uh, oil and gas, where you have data that, that needs to stay safe, uh, clearly government as well. Um, and, and then you start to think of the breadth of these companies um, and organisations. It's pretty broad. So there are a lot of players out there. It's, it's not just limited to one, one area or one industry at all. Uh, and we're talking to all of them at the moment. I mean, um, we expect to go public for our uh, customers on this trial next year uh, we'll have a, bi a big launch event at some point uh, and we'll introduce uh, the customers that we're already starting to sign up uh, until then clearly we have to keep um, a little bit coy about that but there is very broad interest in a wide range of industries whose usp is 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 to, to make sure that what they have it stays secure uh, and increasingly so in, in this in this era unfortunately that, that does become something that, that's important but but 
what you said then was ultimately will that filter down and i think yes uh, um, you know it will and as um what we expect to see is that the industry will grow and that will then start to bring down the cost of equipment we start to increase the volumes of equipment and we'll get a better understanding on how to build it at scale uh, and then when we do that it will become more available to to to, to everybody ultimately and and is this getting into the standards, the telecom standards people, Etsy or ITU or other organizations around the world, are they sort of starting to penetrate? That's not the right word, but you know what I mean? Are they starting to get into this business so that there will be drafting standards for inter-exchange of quantum secure data at some point in the future? Yeah, I'm going to break that into two um, standards mm. and then the inter-exchange, which, which I think you talked about earlier as well. So I'll come back to that. Standards, yes. Um, and Etsy have, have been the, the vanguard, really, um, have, have really um, championed the whole need for standards in, in quantum communications way back. I mean, 20 years or so um, and that that carries on a pace we're heavily involved in that uh, recently I see the ITU um, getting involved as well and that's, that's a good thing although sometimes one can suffer from too many standards trying to do the same thing um, yeah. and and so that that is going to be something we, we have to watch out for um, so, so the st standards are good um, but, but just coming back to you know the second part of that comment um, what are you standardizing uh, and what aren't you standardizing and, and clearly what um, the likes of BT wants is um, a playing field where we can mix and match uh, where we want choice and we want to be able to uh, ha you know be able to buy our QKD systems from multiple vendors and not get locked in and so for us um, standardization that makes sure that we, we have we can keep that choice open um, so the kinds of things are how do you have an open interface to manage the keys so make sure that whatever qkd system you design that you present those keys in a standard way so that we can then consume them uh, with our other equipment uh, whoever it is that, that we're getting the qkd from uh, and that that is going well um the question about whether we would interface with i don't know another um, global operator and somehow hand the keys on uh, I'm, I'm a bit more skeptical about because that seems to me to be in, innately a security problem, a, you know, massively security problem. Uh, and, and I don't think there's been a huge, uh, I'm not aware of a big discussion about actually doing that. So, so I would more expect that BT, for example, would be offering this as our own global solution, which gives us, if you like, um, a benefit. You know, it gives us uh, a head start um, because, you know, for example, we could say that we have a, a global um, solution for multinationals that is more secure than someone else. Um, so so I, I think we're a very long way from where, like a telephone call, you might hand over keys to, to another operator. Would it be over anybody's fibre, though, potentially? It would be over anybody's fibre, but okay. but that's 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 um, transparent to to use a, that's a horrible horrible uh, term because you know, yeah, but you would be able to send the, the 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 encryption information and the traffic on other people's fibre. Well, that's the beauty of it. So if mm. if this QKD goes over someone else's fibre, there's nothing they can do in principle to get access to that data, even though it's going through their exchanges and over their fibre. Because of the point, as you say, of, of quantum, is that if you yes. intercept it, the quantum doesn't get through. So you know something's gone wrong. 
So, so two things happen. You, you can you can do something very crude and try and steal the keys, and if you steal them, they don't get through. Like you yeah. say, or you could um, employ a massive team of quantum physicists and try and do something much more clever and clone the keys, make a copy of them, and then you'll find that quantum physics stops you again because quantum mechanics says you can't clone. <laughs> um, so yeah. e either way, you're stuffed. And, and in that second, more complex approach, I haven't seen anyone even try to do that. So is there going to be a big demand for quantum physicists over the next five or ten years? I mean, are they going to be the, you know, the, the sexy technologists that maybe semiconductor engineers were 30 years ago and so on? Yes, um, although um, the main current demand I'm seeing is more in the quantum computing area where we're seeing uh, dozens of startups globally <clears throat> essentially hiring everybody that's coming out of universities. So you have these brilliant university programs in the UK and in other places, you know, we're benefiting here from, um, I mean, eight, ten years of government funding, um, not just to, to do research, but to have training programs for PhDs uh, and they are being sucked up. Um, to in, into the, you know startups that are, that are clearly growing very quickly at the moment, mainly in the quantum compute space. But I'd, yeah, I think what that tells you is this is here to stay. Um, and um, you know, for the likes of BT, when I try and hire quantum um, experts, I'm competing against very agile startups. Uh, and so yeah, yeah absolutely, we, we need them, <laughs> and, and it's not easy to to get the best. So if you if you, if uh, if a CISO chief information security officer is listening to this when do they have to start getting moving on this it's not some people compared it to Y2K which is obviously you know 20 odd years ago now literally um, but I remember it well and there was a deadline which was Saturday the 1st of January 2000 there isn't a deadline this this but is there a sort of imaginary or a figurative deadline that people should say we should have our quantum strategy in place by whatever the date um, I don't think there is a date yet um... I think um, people generally are talking about five years as a, as a time when, you know, we could expect some of these um, codes to start to be decrypted. Uh, but but we're still waiting for, some, I still think, some engineering breakthroughs in the quantum computing world. So that the, those numbers of qubits has to climb uh, significantly from the, the hundred or so today to up to around a million yeah. uh, and the reason why why is it a million but when you say hang on these codes are only a thousand bits long it's because um, that you need all the error correction to to because quantum computing is not as accurate it's not um, not as reliable in terms of a, a digital a bit operation compared to a, a classical computer now that could all change that could all improve and you know that, that there's a lot of um, well there's tens of billions of dollars being pumped into the various approaches to to quantum computing and and you know, we might be surprised. We might find in a year's time things have moved on because people haven't necessarily publicised everything that they're doing. So I, I think CISOs now should definitely start to show an interest. Um, if I was a CISO, I'd come in and get involved in the BT trial. Because <laughs> um, <laughs> you would say if that. In, yes. If you're based in London. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and just start to get your your toe in the water, really, and start to, to, to try it out and to see, see how it goes. Because... From here to a fully implemented um, security solution using quantum is not instant. It's going to take years. Thank you, Andrew. Anybody else would like to ask Andrew a question about BT's quantum or optical policy? 
Um, I just had one. Um, it was um, about holocaust fiber, um, Andrew, if you don't mind. Um, we did cover the uh, the story um, um, back in September, and I was just curious to know um, holocaust fiber one, um, if you can maybe give us a, a slightly remedial definition of what it is and why it's amazing. Um, but also, um, when do you think we'll kind of reach the point where, you know, things like holocaust fiber will kind of become the norm, not only in, you know, terrestrial networks, but even in subsea deployments? Yeah, the remedial <laughs> description of hollow core fiber um, <laughs> is is that it's it's a fiber with uh, a hollow core. <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, kind of obvious, but, but what, what what's so special about that? Um, and for firstly, the hollow core means there's no glass, which means the glass can't mess up optical signals. Um, secondly, it means that the, the light going through the, the fiber goes quicker um, because the glass slows it down. Um, so the that speed or latency of holocore fiber is what's really driving holocore fiber's interest at the moment because all of the high frequency trading markets uh, rely on speed of data delivery um, and so that's why we're seeing the current interest. Um, so the question then is a really interesting question I think for me and um, the industry is what happens beyond that? So once that's done um, what about these the other benefits of holocore i.e no glass means um, the glass doesn't mess up the signal. How does that improve telecoms more generally than just a, a high frequency trading, low latency use case? Um, and I would say the jury's out there. So, so um, we're publishing papers at the moment, uh, as are others. Uh, and, you know, that's what is occupying our time. That's what's keeping us awake at night is trying to work out um, where are those best use cases? How good does Holocore Fiber need to get? For, for that to make sense um, and I'm not gonna I, I don't have an answer yet so we're, we're still working that through but to give some examples um, low latency might also mean that you're you, you can um, relax some of the specifications around a 5g network because those base stations can be further away um, the the lack of glass means that you can potentially make your um, your lasers cheaper um, because they don't need to kind of cope with all the imperfections and the problems that, that glass presents. Um, so that that that's another avenue that we're exploring. Um, the very low loss potential of hollow core fiber means that you can go further without having to use uh, amplifiers. We talked about uh, optical amplifiers earlier on the subsea um, uh, discussion, but you know terrestrially we use them as well. Um, so so there is all these different benefits. Which, yeah, hollow core could potentially um, outperform single mode fiber in all of them. Now, now that's that's quite impressive, isn't it? But but which which of those um, parameters are the ones that really make the difference? Is something we're still kind of discussing, debating. Yeah. I mean, certainly the applications in like subsea networks, as you mentioned, having like long haul unrepeated systems certainly sounds interesting. Um, so, yeah, we'll be we'll definitely be keeping uh, keeping an eye on that one. Thank you. And maybe I should just add that you, Andrew, you're in uh, you're in the east of England near BT's labs. And it was that part of the world where, what, 50 years ago, maybe a bit longer, that optical fibres were invented at what was then STL in Harlow. So you're talking from the origin of the whole optical fibre technology. So um, it was a, uh, it's something that UK, if I can blow the trumpet or something for UK R&D that it was done within a short distance away or speaking from so uh, and the whole world has benefited in the decade since 
What's re- remarkable about that is that the, I mean, when I joined BT in 1985, <clears throat> the, the, the design of fibre that was going to be used um, in the UK and globally, single mode fibre, um, was established already at that point uh, was already being starting to to be installed um, we still use that fiber uh, okay the spec is better uh, the manufacturing has improved but it essentially that design of that step index single mode fiber hasn't changed um, you know could hollow core be the one that finally <laughs> um, mm-hmm. it, it's quite amazing for technology to last that long in this world um, so, so you know quite incredible that something so simple as a step index fiber has, has stood the test of time for decades but will it finally be overthrown by hollow core I, th- I think we it remains to be seen we shall watch yeah <laughs> Um, well, just a quick follow-up question, um, Andrew, on the hollow core fibre, if I may. Um, you mentioned high-frequency trading um, when you responded to Natalie's question, um, but one of the other benefits of hollow core fibre is that apparently, according to BT, um, it has the potential to lower mobile network costs. Um, now, earlier in this episode, we were talking about um, the news stories and the um, network cost burden, should we say, that some European telcos have highlighted um, over the last week. Um, in terms of the potential to actually lower network costs, are there any figures that you can put on that? And how do you feel as though that could potentially help the business case um, when it comes to the increasing network costs that telcos are facing these days? Yeah, well, I wish I could present numbers. Um, and clearly, internally, we work through those things. Um, that The reason why I'm being coy is um, it, there's still some debate around what latency is required for something like a 5G service. So for, just for example, um, you know, this is still very new technology. So the the the, the telecom vendors that make RAN equipment will have a latency limit in their minds or maybe even even the specifications, but the equipment doesn't necessarily need to hit that um, or doesn't necessarily reach that. So, so um, we're still kind of seeing an evolution of, of that uh, very early technology as it matures to understand what those real latency limits are um, before we can kind of make some, some hard-nosed public predictions as to how much how much kind of consolidation you can do of, of those of those RAN units? So sorry, sorry, not not to completely answer, uh, but but I, I, it's not that I'm fudging. It's that, that you know we still haven't completely worked it out. That's interesting. Thank you for the honesty. Um, any final questions for Andrew then before we um before we wrap up today? No, not for me. But thank you very much, Andrew. It's been a fascinating conversation. Thank you. No, you're very welcome. Yeah, thank you. It's been wonderful, Andrew. Thank you so much for joining us. And you're also our last guest for 2022, which makes it even more special. And you're talking about things that we've been kind of figuring out over the course of this year as the telecoms industry has started to kind of talk more about quantum key distribution and next generation fibre and all these other amazing things. So thank you so much for taking the time to join us and explain it all. You're very welcome. Thank you very much. Well, that brings us to the end of this week's episode. Thank you to the team for bringing us the latest on all those stories. Thanks also to everyone who listened and a huge thanks to Andrew for joining us live today. We will be back next year on the 7th of January with more stories from the global tech and telecom space. But until then, we'll not leave you without updates. You can catch up on all the latest on telecoms and data centers over at capacitymedia.com. Don't forget to sign up to our news alerts. Check out the December, January edition of Capacity Magazine featuring Andrew Lord and also register for our 2022 events. For now, that's all from me and the team. Have a great December, take care and catch you next year.